0: James chapter 5. Okay, so this morning as we we dive in, there's uh, a little bit of a shift, uh, though not too much of a shift in in what we're encountering this morning. Um, And I just want to remind us of the audience, James is writing to believing Jews. Um, And so this is directed at the body of Christ. And we're going to have that theme come through in two ways this morning. Not only who is being spoken to, uh, but who is in receipt of that. it's in there? Of that message. Um, well, we'll have to go with that. Are we... Are we We'll just go without, it's fine. I pulled it out because I needed the port (laughs) and I usually copy it to the computer so I can do that. Okay. But, uh, so, so we need to keep that in mind that there's twofold. This message will be, uh, directed at us as members of the body of Christ in those two ways. And we're going to cover our response to that in more depth next week. But this week I want to look at the, uh, what James is discussing here, uh, The idea here that we're going to encounter uh, is in regard to oppression, in regard to taking advantage of one another. And oh, that the body of Christ was purged of sin, but it's not. It's made up of imperfect, sinful people. And we have this conflation, this this opposition within us uh, and within the body of Christ of sin, this mixing. And so it's not a a perfect institution made up of imperfect things. And so there's going to be problems. There's going to be ups and downs, and there's going to be those things that are there. And God, in His sovereignty and God, in His mercy towards us, uses those things as agents of our sanctification. He brings us together and directs us to the fellowship that we're involved with for the purpose of growing us and is faithful to redeem those things for our best. And for his glory. And so we see that being played out here in the book of James. We see it elsewhere throughout the New Testament where we encounter the body of Christ that is being corrected. James addresses these kinds of hardships, this conflation, this mixing of our desire to serve the Lord and our failure in doing so. He addresses that, and he addresses the hardships that we may face at the hands of even potentially other believers and non-believers, because the things that he's going to cover here could be either, and he's going to dive into, and we're going to get into more next week, our response, the responsibility that we may have before the Lord to honor him in the midst of that. I'll just give you a little foreshadowing of that, but we are to keep the faith. We're going we're gonna to sort of introduce this, but God is not blind or deaf to the cries of those who are being uh, wrongfully used, who are being oppressed, who are being taken advantage of. And so that's where we're at, and that's where we're beginning here in James chapter 5. Uh, and I know that's a terrible introduction because we haven't even read it. We haven't even gotten into it. We haven't even introduced what he's talking about, but let's look at it. In James chapter 5, verse 1, go to now you rich men weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you now he i want to just pause there james is saying go to now that which means pay attention you who are rich right he's saying he's he's giving a warning and there's going to be a specific context and we're going to come back to that here in just a moment but what i want to do is just be very clear that James is calling the, the wealthy, and as we get into this, we'll see he's calling those who have built their fortunes on the backs of those that they've taken advantage of. He's calling them to an account. Wealth in and of, in and of itself does not equal sin. Just because somebody is wealthy does not mean that they have, have taken advantage. doesn't mean that they. We're, we're painting with a relatively broad brush, and we have to understand that. Let's look at a couple of things, though, because we want to see the audience that that James is addressing. If we jump back to chapter 2, verse 6, James, in regard to uh, not being a respecter of persons, he says this in verse 6 of James 2, but you despise the poor. And he says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. They're the ones that are uh, causing trouble. They're the ones that are Call that are oppressing and taking advantage of you, who, but he's telling them you're giving them a special seat and position of honor. We ought not to do that. Okay, so there's this this idea. Now, the other thing is that poverty or being poor or even being oppressed does not equal, uh, does not necessarily guarantee that we are being persecuted. Just because we, we are not financially well off doesn't mean that we are being oppressed, that we are being subject, subjugated somehow. We have to understand that God is sovereign, that He is fully in control. And also we have to understand that there is a, a right and an appropriate pursuit, a righteous pursuit of wealth. That we can, we can seek after this, not in a way that's gonna be self gratifying or, or for our own glory, but in a way that provides the needs that we have. Wealth in it itself does not equal sin. Poverty in itself does not equal oppression. And we have to be very clear about that because in today's world, right, we have entire political theories that would say if you are poor, you are being oppressed, which is not true. And removes the sovereignty of God in placing us wherever we are. There are certain things in your life that you are never going to be able to change, right? I will, I will probably never be any taller than I am at this point. I will probably get shorter over time, right? The height that we are, the age that we are, the family that God has sovereignly places—those are unchangeables, things that are non-negotiable. God and His sovereignty has put us there. God, in His sovereignty, placed us into a socioeconomic status. For lack of better terms, there we are. And as I said, it doesn't prohibit you and I from a righteous pursuit of bettering that. There's nothing wrong with that. Turns me to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter six. Now, in First Timothy chapter six, Paul is writing to this young man in the faith, and he's giving him some instruction that he might share. And he's talking about and discussing the fact that we need to be content with the things that we are given, and that's sort of the context. Verse six would say, "But godliness with contentment is great gain, wherever we may be." And he continues on. Let's jump into verse nine. It says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Right, so we have this idea that, that it isn't necessarily wrong to be, to be wealthy, that God may have even blessed you with wealth, but realize that it comes with temptation. That it comes with its own set of things that we have to be watchful of. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of evil. All evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Right? The headache and, and the, the, they've transposed where their heart is. Last year, when I had the opportunity to be at uh, Global Survey International's orientation one of the things that they talked about and part of the reason they've structured themselves the way they have is because if you're going into a closed country and you're establishing the business as a means of legitimacy within the country to remain there to share the gospel with people they come in and they have these great business plans and they're very, they can be very lucrative and they've had some struggles where Here are missionaries, they've gone in, well-intentioned, desirous to serve the Lord, they've established a business, and it's lucrative, and they leave the missionary efforts behind, and they focus solely on the business. That would be a description of what's happening here. They've left their first love, so to speak, in pursuit of something else. So Paul is here writing about the, the possibility that, listen, we got to be watchful of those things. And as we jump into uh, verses 17 through 19, he gives, for those that God may bless with, uh, with wealth, he gives them, these are the responsibilities associated with the blessing I have given you. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So here we have this statement that God is giving this uh, to them, that he is the uh, author, if you will, of the blessing of the wealth that they have. And he's given it to them, uh, in some respects, to enjoy, and we can find that in other places. In the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, as we, as we study through that, we saw that God, here it is, enjoy some of the fruits of your labor. As a steward of it, you have some enjoyment of what God has entrusted you to be a steward of. But he continues on, <clears throat> verse 18, they that do good, that they be rich in good works, that they are ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may, lo- that they may lay hold on eternal life. Okay, the idea here is that because there are certain Temptations that come in regard to that wealth that God may have blessed us with, that we have to guard ourselves against it. And so here is the responsibility that we may have as we're as we have wealth. If God chooses to bless us with that, we are to be not high-minded. We're going to come back to that. We're not to trust. Just as Job, who had everything, was a wealthy man by all accounts and lost everything. God giveth and God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we're not to trust in those things. We trust in the living God, he says. And we need to establish our faith who gives us originally all things to enjoy. They need to do good. That The wealth that they have is a means to communicate uh, the love of God to the world around them. Ready to distribute, to meet needs financially. Ready to be uh, those that would support endeavors and missionary. Uh, missionary ende- endeavors, endeavors within the body of Christ to outreach those kinds of things to help those in need within the body. There is a responsibility associated with that. Now, some of the temptations that come as a result. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Deuteronomy chapter eight. Let's look in verses 12 through 14. Now, as we, as we look into Deuteronomy, remember this is God restating the law to the generation of those who will be entering into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter eight, because they're gonna be a prosperous nation from the get-go, God is leading them and providing them a country that is flowing with milk and honey, that is abundant. I mean, you're gonna come in and you're gonna have a house to live in. You're gonna have a well to drink from. You're gonna have crops to harvest you're going to be wealthy the moment you enter the land effectively. And so God is telling them, listen, there are some things you need to be watchful for in regard to this wealth. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses 12 through 14. Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 11. Beware that thou forget not the Lord in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command this day. And if we go up and if we read a few verses before that, Listen, he, he's talking about you're going to go into this land uh, and you're going to eat bread without uh, scarceness. You're not going to lack anything. Uh, when you've eaten in our full, now, then thou shalt bless the Lord, he says. Right? When, when you come in and you enjoy the benefits of the wealth that God is blessing you with as a nation, be careful that you don't forget who has provided those. Verse 13, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up. This is the temptation. And now forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Watchful, be careful that we're not lifted up, that we're not saying, look at what I have done, just as Nebuchadnezzar, who stood there looking over Babylon. This is the monument to my glory. The nation of Israel didn't do anything here. This is all that the Lord has provided. So there's a responsibility and there's certain temptation that comes as a result. Ecclesiastes, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You'll go to uh, Psalms and then Proverbs and then right after Proverbs, you'll find Ecclesiastes tucked in there between Isaiah and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt, but those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth the son and there is nothing in his hand. In other words, the temptation is to take that which God has given us to be a steward of and rather than being eager to meet needs and distribute to the needs of the body of christ as he is designed and given the responsibility for us to do we hoard that we hold on to it we we don't use it for the glory of god we use it for our own enjoyment solely and completely rj letourneau who uh in many respects invented and sort of revolutionized the heavy equipment industry The first million dollars that he made, he looked at his wife and he said, listen, can we live on 10% of what we just made? And this was, I don't remember the, the era, but this is 40s, 50s. And she says, well, absolutely, we can live on $90,000 a year. That sounds like plenty. And he tied 90% of all that he made. And he was a Christian man. He understood that here is the Lord. He is honored and blessed me for the purpose. And this is my responsibility before the Lord. And so let's fund the kingdom work. And that's exactly what he did. Now, that may be an extreme case. He was in no way obligated to do that. God had laid it on his heart. He was faithful to that. And God was faithful to him. But he understood the responsibility that came with wealth. And he also understood the temptation that came with it. As we read here in Ecclesiastes, right, he's going to hold on to all of that. But listen, (laughs) he came forth of his mother's womb naked. Shall he return to go as he came? I was joking at my grandpa's funeral the other day with one of my cousins. And I said, I think I'm going to have a closed casket funeral. Because that's the way I came into the world. It's the way I'm going to go out of the world. Don't open the casket. Or you can't take it with you. We are a steward of it in this life and in this life alone. Whatever God has blessed us with. One more reference here in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Now this is where we read about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus, verse 19, there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And we have this further description. And in hell, excuse me, verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Okay, now just a quick aside here, Abraham's bosom. This is the the temporary holding place where the faithful go to reside until Christ came. Now that Christ has come, to be asked for the bodies to be present with the Lord. And so Abraham's bosom no longer exists or serves that function. Just an aside, it's important for us to have that understanding. But it's a place of paradise, a place of reward and rest as a result of faithfulness. Excuse me, as a result of faith in the Lord. And then we have Hades, or this word that's called hell here, and that place still exists and serves the same purpose. It's a place of torment and punishment. It is the natural state that we all find ourselves in from the moment we are born. And left to our own devices, left uh, destitute of faith in Jesus Christ, that's where we'll end up. Okay, we find this thing happening, this interaction, the, the poor man goes, because of his faith to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes, because of his uh, lack of faith in Christ, he goes to hell. Verse 23, and in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy goods, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. This isn't a reference to uh, the wealth being sin, nor is it a reference to the poor and the destitute being uh, somehow specially blessed. What this is a reference to is the stewardship. Lazarus, you were provided things and you took those things that you had and you held on to them just as we read in ecclesiastes you tried to hold on to it and now because you were a poor steward of everything that was entrusted to you because you were a poor steward even of the life that god gave you and of the truth of his uh, promise to provide a messiah here you are Just as with any sin, yielding to the temptations associated with wealth is going to bring righteous correction. We're going to reap what we sow. We are only stewards of what God has entrusted us with. Wealth itself does not equal sin. Poverty itself does not equal oppression. But we trust the sovereignty of God in both, and we steward whatever God has given us. His glory. Now back to James chapter 5. Let's read verses 2 and 3. So here is James. He's saying, Pay attention, you rich men. You're going to howl. There's going to be miseries that come upon you because they are taking advantage. They are living like Lazarus, excuse me, like the rich man in that parable. They're not stewarding that which God has entrusted them with well. And in fact, to further whatever they've been receiving. They are taking advantage of those around them. He says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure for the last days. Excuse me. We have this temporal, this description of temporal treasure." that which exists here in this life and this life only and he says listen that's where your trust is that's where your heart is but the reality is this that those riches are corrupted that your garments are moth eaten they're destroyed they're not going to last furthermore the gold and the silver that you have is cankered have you ever i've probably never seen cankered gold or silver but what i have seen is cankered steel Right? You have this vehicle, and it's got a little rust down here, down on the rocker panels and things, and the paint's all bubbly, and then you touch it and it just disintegrates. That's a description of what this is. It's exactly what this means. It's rotted and it leaves nothing there in the end. That which is precious is consumed by that which is destructive. It's cankered. The rust, the corrosion of them is a witness against us. When I read this verse, I have to confess the first thing that came to my mind. I don't have to confess this, but I'm going to confess this. The first thing that came to my mind is Scrooge McDuck. Right? If you grew up in my generation, you watch DuckTales and, and you grew up with that. Scrooge McDuck, he's got this giant vault, this tower. And what does he do on a daily basis? He goes and he swims through all of the cash that he's got hoarded in this building and he just loves it and, you, and all the security is there. He is a description of poor stewardship of wealth. He is the poster child for what you should not do in regard to the wealth that God has entrusted you with. And his every pursuit is the furtherance of that wealth. We have these things being discussed here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus would exhort you and I, he would encourage us. He would, in in fact, uh, this is an imperative statement. This is a command. This is something that you and I need to be watchful of. Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth and rust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. It's temporal. It doesn't last. It rusts. It falls to pieces. It can be lost. It can be stolen. And that's not where we are to lay treasure up. You and I who are believers, our first and foremost deposit, if you will, is in the kingdom of God. And he continues on. But, this is the other imperative, this is what we shouldn't do, and this is what we should do. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Right? We make a deposit in a bank that is completely secure, and un, un, I don't know, whatever it means when you can't break into something. It is perfectly safe. The deposits that we are making there are somewhat different than the monetary deposits and the wealth that is being discussed here. When we look at the foundation of Jesus Christ as our life and the way that we conduct ourselves and those things that are for His glory and for His honor, being those non-perishable materials, gold, silver, precious stones, those things that we may build upon, that we receive reward for on the other side. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that we should live in such a way that our sole motivation is to hoard treasure in heaven because that would be exactly the same as hoarding treasure here on earth. The idea is that we are hoarding treasure and that we are building upon the foundation of Christ for the sole purpose that God would be glorified and made known. That people would behold our good works, they would see those good works that we have and they would glorify our Father which is in heaven. That is building with precious things. And there is reward associated with that. God is just in his compensation, if I can phrase it that way, to you and I who have served him. He continues on, he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's why I say that if our motivation is to just hoard that treasure up there so that boy, in the afterlife, and in eternity, I get to just live it up, we've fallen far short. The treasure that we have, the treasure that we're pursuing is God and His glory, not our own. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when you pick up the scene in heaven here and we've all come before the Lord, what happens? It says that we lay down those crowns of righteousness, those things that we have received, we lay them down at the feet of Jesus. We lay them down. So we're building differently. We have a different treasure that isn't temporal. that isn't in this life necessarily. And we had this exhortation that the, the wealth that surrounds us, that God may have blessed us with, or that we may uh, wrongly pursue wholeheartedly might just consume us. If we jump back to James chapter four, those first couple of verses, verses two through three, you lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. In Romans chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me. In Romans chapter 2, we typically apply this to unbelievers. And by way of application, I want to uh, just sort of turn it inward and let the word of God come to bear upon our lives in regard to this temporal treasure that we are surrounded with, that we are often tempted to go and pursue. And while there isn't anything wrong with bettering ourselves or, or working or, or making a living, even a very good living, if that becomes the sole purpose of our investment of time and energy, we've fallen short. We are serving our own temporal kingdom and not the kingdom of God. So it begins in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest does the same thing. Right? This is it. We may see others and those things that we see happening, those people that we're reading about here in James chapter 5, who are taking advantage, who are building the wealth, are we taking advantage? We have to be careful. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things, and doest the same, thou shalt escape the judgment of God? We're going to reap what we sow. There is a consequence for sin. And there is a reward for righteous living. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? And this is really the key verse, verse 5 here. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Remember, back here in James chapter 5, he says that thou hast... Heaped treasure together for the last days. He's heaped treasure together for the last days. And here in verse 5 in Romans chapter 2, the hardness and the impenitent heart, right? The the heart that treasures unto thyself wrath against the day of judgment. In other words, I'm just heaping those things that are consumable upon the foundation of Christ. Now, this is in Romans 2, just to be clear, this is reference to those who are not in the faith, but by way of application, are we heaping unto ourselves those things that are perishable? Are we building with hay, wood, and stubble those things that will not endure the fire? Have we gotten our pursuits out of alignment? Is it more important to me that I lay up treasures here on this world, in this life than in the next life? Because in the end, when we go and we look at the passages in in Corinthians, where it's talking about building with those materials, it isn't talking about a loss of salvation, but it's talking about this judgment that comes as a result. And everything is tried by that fire of God's judgment, and it burns up. Those things that are perishable burn up. They don't last. And if it's not going to last, let's face it; it's a complete and utter waste of our time. We're told in the Book of Ephesians to redeem our time well, because the days are evil. Right? We are surrounded by the temptation to pursue those things. Do <laughs> you remember the? I don't remember what is commercial for, but you have this guy and he's got this big house in the back and he's got this riding lawnmower and it's this discussion about how does he have all these things how does he afford this house how does he have this and how does he have that and he's just driving his little lawnmower smiling at the camera and i'm dead up to my eyeballs none of that stuff matters none of that stuff adds up to anything in the economy of god yet we would pursue it to the bondage of ourselves to (laughs) to those that we would be taken advantage of by for the keeping of face, for the keeping up with the neighbors, whatever it may be. We are without excuse if we are going to run in that way in this life. God has told us more. He's told us better. We're to be stewards of those things that God has given us, and time being one of those key things that we should steward for His honor and for His glory. How are we living? How are we building? Where is the treasure of our heart? Where is it vested? James chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. As James continues his Uh, stinging words to those that are taking advantage. He says, behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. We're going to come back to that here in a moment. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and He does not resist you. This could be us. I don't know that it's anybody here particularly, but we may suffer at the hands of those who are within the body of Christ. We may suffer the same kinds of things as those who are outside of the body of Christ. We want to be careful that we never fall into this temptation. Here's the thing, and what I want to remind us of this morning is we sort of look at this is the reality of the world that we live in, that people are taken advantage of, that people are oppressed, that people do end up being taken advantage of for the simple pursuit of wealth, of gain. because we live in a world that has fallen, because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, that we live in a world where we, where we will fail in our resistance to the loss of our flesh. It is the reality, and we need to understand that. But the other thing, the bigger thing that we need to understand is that God hears the cries of those who are oppressed. Injustice is not ignored by God. And there would be those who would say, those scoffers who would say, well, look, here it is, you suffer, there is hardship in the world, there is all of those things. God, because He could fix it all if He's omnipotent, just like you say, is why doesn't He do it? And the reality is this, that right, God didn't create any of the sin or the hardship resultant from sin. Man has created all of that. And God in His sovereignty is redeeming it, but His ways are not our ways. And so when we look at it and say, well, this is what should happen. This is what I would do. This is how this should be fixed. We put ourselves in the position of God and say, I know better than He does. When in reality, God is the best at redeeming things for the best of those, He is redeeming them on their behalf. And we as believers don't have the opportunity to call into question God's reasons or why. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19. God gives some direction and he gives direction from very early on in scripture that this is the way we are to operate. That you and I, this is how we do things so that we don't take advantage. Verse 13 in Leviticus 19. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. In other words, when we agree upon a price and we say, listen, you work this long and I will pay you this much, we pay them that much and we do it directly. Remember the parable that Jesus gave and there are those who came and they worked all day long and they got paid this much. And then there are those that at noon came and they they got recruited and they made the same amount. And then those at the very end of the day agreed upon a price. And it happened to be the same as those who agreed on the price in the morning. They all got paid the same. And those who worked in the morning all day long were upset because they should have made more than the people who worked in the afternoon. And they, but they were paid the same. Listen, they all agreed on what they were going to get paid for the amount of work they were going to do. And it was perfectly just to say, listen, I'll, I'll pay you what we agreed upon. There was no withholding. There was no taking advantage of anything. There was nothing there. I realize that may not be the whole point of that particular parable, but it's perfectly agreeable. So when somebody says, listen, I'm going to change for every hour that you work, I'm going to exchange this much money with you or this much of that thing or whatever it may be. You give me that and I'll give you this. Right? We're doing so in good faith. When we come and the, the nation of Israel is told to bring a sacrifice before the Lord, they're, not told, they're specifically told not to bring a lamb with blemish, with spot. Because it would be easy to say, listen, I need to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Here's what I'm going to do. This lamb is going to die anyway. I'm going to take that junky old lamb and I'm going to offer that to the Lord. And that's akin to those Pharisees who would come and bring their offering before the lord out of their abundance yet here's this widow that brings her two pennies out of her need she actually makes sacrifice in her offering and so too they were told bring that spotless lamb this is what is required this is the agreement that is being made this is how the 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 offering is to be brought and the position of the heart in the bringing of that offering. God tells us in the New Testament that that offering is to be cheerful. That we're not doing so out of a sense of obligation. We're not going through motions, but we're doing so with a heart that is joyful in the process. That here I am, I have the opportunity and the privilege out of the relationship that has been purchased for me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ to bring an offering that is favorable to the Lord. It is pleasing to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day, thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the son go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against the end of the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. Remember the end of verse, uh, the end of chapter four in James, verse seventeen. Unto him that knows to do good and he doesn't do it, that's sin. Here it is. God has commanded you and I, His people. He says, "Listen, when you have agreed with somebody." That this is the day upon which you'll be paid, and this is how much you'll be paid for the the work that you've put in. You don't withhold that, you don't don't hold a portion of it back. We fulfill the obligation that we've made, and we do so in honor of the Lord. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians chapter 4 verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, for you and I as believers, this, this sums up what's being taught here. We're not We're not doing these things out of sense of obligation to the person. We're doing this as unto the Lord. We're doing this as service to Him. We're doing this as accurate representation of His heart to those people who are in need. We give unto our servants that which is just and equal, that which is right and good, that which we have agreed upon, knowing that we have a master that is in heaven. And here's the thing, if you and I are going to mimic our master which is in heaven, we're very likely to go above and beyond that which is agreed upon. God who in hid the midst of his love for you and I while we were yet sinners, while we were unfavorable, while we were detestable, while we were his enemies, would send his son Jesus Christ to die for you and me. Above and beyond That which was agreed upon. The soul that sins shall die. Yet God in his goodness. I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17. If we're going to mimic, if we're going to show the love of Christ to those that we operate with, there's going to be something that represents that. Maybe you and I, as as an employer, we'd have the opportunity to hire somebody. This is the going rate for the occupation that you're at. But you know what? Because I want to exhibit the love of Christ to you, we're going to pay a little more. Or perhaps we'll have different benefits or whatever the scheme may be, right? I'm just giving examples. Here's the job well done. We're going to grant a bonus as a result of that. Above and beyond. If we're going to mimic the character of God. We're going to do something in addition. But through all of this. We notice that in, in the Old Testament. And, and even into the New. That there is a service unto God. And that the, the cries of those who have been oppressed. Are not ignored by God. But you're going to pay them. It says in Deuteronomy. You're going to pay them when it's due. So that their cries don't rise up to the Lord. We're going to reap what we sow. God hears the cries of those who are being taken advantage of. Now, I said we're going to come back to this discussion about the Lord of the Sabaoth. Lord of Sabaoth means Lord of hosts. It's exactly the same thing. It's the the Greek transliteration. And as we look in the Old Testament, there are 261 uses of the term Lord of hosts in the Old Testament. And when you find it, It's two words, right? The first word is Yahweh. We know that because it's translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is the name of God that was given to Moses. I am that I am. That God himself is the commander of the hosts, the armies of heaven. So when we break this down, it means the God of the armies of the heaven, or or some translations even translate it, the Lord Almighty. What this means is that when we are talking about who is coming to the aid of the oppressed, this is who it is. That he is more than able, that he is more than capable, that he has everything in the universe at his disposal to bring about justice on behalf of those who are being oppressed. It is the Lord of hosts, the creator of the universe, the commander of the the armies of all of heaven that is coming to the aid of those who have been oppressed, those who have been taken advantage of, those who have been defrauded, those who have made cry unto him in faith and in trust that he does hear. Turn with me to 1st Samuel chapter 17. 1st Samuel 17. This is where we find David and he's come to the battlefield as the Philistines are arrayed in battle against the armies of Israel. And the real idea in regard to the Lord of hosts is not only is God the captain and the leader, the commander of all of the armies of heaven, but he's the Commander and the leader of all armies and all authority and power here, even on earth, and specifically so of the armies of Israel. And we all know the story. Here is Samuel, or excuse me, David, and he comes the command of his father to bring this meal, this, this stuff, and check on the state of his brothers. And while he's there, the giant Goliath comes, this Philistine, and he challenges the armies of Israel. And he mocks the God of Israel. And David concludes, this should not be so. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. Then David, as he stands face to face with Goliath, says, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. And we all know the story. We know what David had. He had been arrayed in Saul's armor. He had been covered in it, and as he was covered in it, he couldn't move. He couldn't do those things necessary to fight the battle. And so as he sought the Lord, he took five small stones and a single sling, and he stood before the giant Goliath as the champion of Israel, this young boy. But as David concludes here in this verse, He didn't come simply with a sling and a stone. He says, and he continues on in verse 45, I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who thou hast defied. I come on his behalf and in his power and in his strength. And as the Philistine, the giant, bears down upon David and David loads his little sling with his single stone and he takes aim and he spins that thing and he shoots that rock out and he takes down the giant not because he had the accuracy not because he had the ability but because the god of heaven stood on his side because the lord of hosts was fighting for him in Psalm chapter 24, <clears throat> Psalm 24, verse 10, this is a psalm of David. At the end of this psalm, he asks this question, who is this king of glory? And he concludes, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts exercises His authority on our behalf. He moves on behalf of those whose cries have risen to Him out of their oppression. And our response, our duty, so to speak, before Him is to Wait patiently upon his deliverance. We're going to discuss some of that more as we move on next week. But the kingship, the authority, the sovereignty expressed that the king of glory, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts is this king of glory. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 37 for just a moment. Isaiah 37 and verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwelleth between the cherubims. I'll just pause there for a moment. He dwells between the cherubims. You remember that as they built the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant was designed specifically with these two cherubims facing one another. And it was there that the glory, the presence of the Lord would descend and that he would dwell with his people. God isn't simply the leader and the sovereign over those things which exist in some ethereal reign, uh, realm of heaven he is the he who descends here to earth and ex- exercises his sovereignty over all of creation he who dwells above the cherubim he continues on thou art the god even thou alone Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. There is no power that is not of God, we would read in Romans 13. And here is this clear description that this Lord of hosts, this creator of the universe, he is the one who is exercising sovereignty. He is the one that hears the the cries of the oppressed. And he is the one that is moving and showing himself strong on their behalf whose heart is perfect toward Him, who trusts in Him. We faithfully wait and we patiently wait for His justice to be executed. Paul would say that the Old Testament, that which has been written, it was written for our example. It was written so that we might have this Testimony and witness of the faithfulness of God throughout time. While the world may see the church as lambs to the slaughter, and in fact, in some respects, we are described that way, we know, or I hope that we know, that we are in good company, that we stand with the heroes of the faith who would trust God in every circumstance, the, the prophets that were persecuted who trusted god turn with me to hebrews chapter 11 for just a moment hebrews chapter 11 i want to begin in verse 32 as he's gone through and and the author of hebrews has described the faithfulness of abel and of noah and abraham moses He continues on in this description and and the number, the multitude of those witnesses of Scripture that have come before. And he begins and he says, what shall I say more? Verse 32, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith, who through their trust in the God, this Lord of hosts, And by his power and his strength, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness and obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of cruel mocking and scourging, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. All of them patiently trusting in God and His deliverance. And it says of this, in this parenthetical statement at the beginning of verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They were looking forward to something yet to come. They were looking forward to this promised deliverance you and I have the benefit of looking back at the fulfillment of that promise. We walk in the same faith as these people who who have subdued kingdoms, who have wrought miracles, who were delivered time and time again as God was faithful to His people. We enjoy the same benefit, but we do it from the perspective of looking back on the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ. And as we jump into the following chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, testimony after testimony of the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of the Lord of hosts, who would move on the behalf of His people, you and I, who may be oppressed, who may be held down, who may be suffering at the hands of of unrighteous people or in the hands of those who have succumbed to the temptation of sin for any reason. Wherefore, he says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author Or the initiator and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down, and he's set down because it is finished, as he declared from the cross, at the right hand of the throne of God. But we have this witness. We have all of this leading up to it. And I want to look at some of witnesses, so to speak, from Scripture of God, the Lord of hosts, moving on behalf of the people that have cried unto Him. Because I don't want to leave us with simply trust in the Lord. I want to leave us with the example and the witness that we can safely trust in the Lord. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 4 first. We'll begin there. Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, and verse 10. And here we have this. This is what has happened. Cain and Abel have both brought their sacrifice. Cain, the farmer, brings a sacrifice from his fields, which is not the prescribed or the, the, the sacrifice that has been given by example. But Abel, who is the rancher, so to speak, in the whole scenario, he brings from the flock. He brings that blood sacrifice, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there's no forgiveness of sin. And God, by his example, when Adam and Eve sinned, took and shed blood as a temporary covering for their sinfulness. And Abel, in faith of the example of God, Offers a same sacrifice, it's received. Cain's is not received. Cain murders his brother. He is heavily persecuted. Would you agree? And God says this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10: What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. Did here the God of the universe, the creator, the very God that we have been talking about, is the Lord of hosts. Though there's no opportunity to plead or to cry out unto the Lord as a result of what has happened, yet he is not ignorant nor choosing to ignore what has happened, but is faithful to what he has said. And as a result, Cain reaps what he has sown and he is punished for the murder of his brother. God knows. When we've been taken advantage of, when we've been persecuted, when we are experiencing hardship as a result of the effects of sin in the world that we live in right now, God is not somehow checked out. He is engaged in the process. And he is fully aware of what is happening. And just as he did here with Abel, moved to execute justice without the knowledge of he whose action, whose part he was moving on behalf of. Right? We have to understand that, that God is fully executing. He's doing what it needs to be done to bring about justice, to bring about his plans and purposes, whether we've cried out or not. It is who he is. Exodus chapter 2. If you'll turn there with me in Exodus chapter 2 the nation of israel has found themselves in egypt and they've been there for 400 years just as god had foretold abraham and as a result they've grown and they've flourished into this nation of people so much so that pharaoh says listen we're going to have to destroy the male babies because otherwise it's going to outnumber us they're going to take over egypt And we have those midwives who are faithful to the Lord. And uh, listen, yeah, we're just not going to do that. We're just going to ignore the command of Pharaoh. But here they are in this foreign land being oppressed. They've been made slaves. These millions of people as slaves, and and they are destitute. And God hears their cry. Look with me in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. And it came to to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God for reason of the bondage. And God heard their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. That here they are under oppression, under bondage, under under all kinds of affliction as a result of being found where they are. And God remembers, and God is faithful to the promise that He's made, and He works to deliver them. Even miraculously so. As we see the plagues in Egypt confirming that, hey, these are in fact God's people, you need to let them go, Pharaoh. As he leads them out by pillar of cloud and pillar of fire as he parts the red sea as he provides for them food and water in the wilderness as he provides for them even in their unfaithfulness to him over and over again so that they may inherit that which has been promised to them to inherit God moves on their behalf because they trust in Him, because they make their cry unto Him as a result of knowing that He is, in fact, their God. That He is, in fact, for them and not against them, just as He is with us. What shall separate us from the love of God? And as we read through in Romans chapter 8, all the things listed there, the absolute conclusion is this, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Even persecution, even hardship, even the ramifications of sin in this world won't separate us from the love of God. In Psalm 18, verse 6, <clears throat> Psalm 18, verse 6, I just want to begin the introduction to this particular psalm, it says, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. We pick up here in verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice, and out of his temple and my cry came before him even into his ears remember that as elijah was there on them on mount carmel and with the prophets of baal all hundreds of them and they cry and they jump around and just begging baal to come and consume this sacrifice and elijah mocks them and he says well maybe he just can't hear you and they cry louder and louder and they do all these things to get his attention And nothing happens. And later, Elijah, with a simple, single prayer, after the uh, sacrifice has been completely soaked, simply asks, Lord, consume this so that they may know that there is a God in heaven. And fire comes down from heaven, consumes it, burns up the rock, and even burns the dust of the ground. And here is David declaring the same thing, it's simply saying, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. He wasn't too busy or engaged in something else. He wasn't over here taking a nap and somehow missed my cry. No, God is completely aware. God is completely engaged in the process of your life and in my life. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, if you'll just turn a few pages back. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. And here we have this psalm, and in, in many respects, we're looking at what's happening here, and we see that this is somewhat prophetic and this is jesus on the cross but for you and i what i want to look at here is the the first few verses we have david and he's crying unto the lord and he's crying unto the lord and he feels as if i cry in the daytime and by but thou hearest not and in the night season and i'm not silent he has this perspective because he is a man just like us and it isn't correct, and it isn't true. And we're going to jump in a few verses ahead here in just a moment. But he, under, he feels as if God isn't hearing. God's not moving on his timetable. God's not moving as fast or in the way that he desires God to have moved. And sometimes that's where we find ourselves. That we cry unto the Lord, and yet it seems as if it's delayed, and we, we are impatient. We're going to talk about patience next week. But there's, there's this perception that somehow God is far from us or that somehow he's not hearing or whatever it may be. I want to encourage you, that is a false perception. That is our finite understanding of everything that is happening around us coming to bear it is the influence of our flesh and we should not succumb to it neither did David succumb to it even though he felt that way and he articulated it and we can safely articulate that to the Lord he knows he knows the frustrations of our heart he knows those things and I'll tell you this that the relationship that God has established with you by adopting you into his family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, can tolerate our open discussion with him. Lord, why? He can take it. (laughs) But just as we see here, David, as he articulates that, he understands the truth and he clings to it by faith. And that's what we have to do in those circumstances as well. We have to trust the Lord. We have to understand that His ways may not be our ways. And so as we look and we jump to verse 23 in Psalm 22, you fear the Lord, praise Him. All ye, the seed of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All ye, the seed of Israel. Right? That's where we begin. Just as we started in James chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, rejoice when we fall into all kinds of temptations, all kinds of trials. We praise the Lord, and he continues on in in the next verse, verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto the Lord, he heard. Here is David crying out, and he feels as if God doesn't hear, yet he acknowledges that, Lord, you do hear. I may be frustrated with the the circumstance, I may be frustrated with your timing, I may be frustrated and not understanding, but Lord, I trust you, and I know you've hurt. And he resolves to operate in that understanding. David, a man after God's own heart, would operate in faith. And in the same way, when we have the witness of Scripture, you and I, when we fall into these trials, these these temptations, these hardships, all kinds of affliction and persecution, even though it may feel as if God is not hearing, we have the firm assurance that He does. We have the witness of Scripture, the truth of the Word of God, that He is moving on our behalf. Unless we think this is only an Old Testament thing, jump with me to the book of Acts for just a moment. As we just begin to close, turn with me to Acts chapter 12. And just a single example, if we read through the book of Acts, we would see example after example of God showing himself strong, of God moving and hearing those who cried unto him out of their oppression, out of their persecution. Acts chapter 12, verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. Here is Peter in the inner prison, secured between two soldiers. The angel of the Lord shows up, kicks him in the side and says, stand up, Peter, it's time to go. And the shackles fall off as people are praying without ceasing for Peter. Verse 8, and the angel said unto him, gird thyself, bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he says unto him, cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him, with not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. Here's Peter in the midst of his deliverance, not fully realizing that God is in fact delivering him, but thinking, maybe I'm just dreaming all of this. And when they were past the first and the second ward, or the guards of those two areas, they came into the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, when he realized that as he's been delivered from this prison, now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod. And from all the expectation of the people of the Jews... God is still moving to deliver people. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. He is still the Lord of hosts. One more reference in Philippians chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me. Philippians chapter 4. You and I have a response to this. A response of faith that would say, God, I trust, just as David trusted, even though it seemed as if you didn't hear, I know that you hear because you've told us that you do. And just as Jesus said, the the truth will set you free, that truth liberates us from the bondage of fear and anxiety and hardship within our hearts because we can safely trust in the Lord. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be careful or anxious. Be worried about nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication. Now that's that crying unto the Lord. That's trusting Him. That's making the conscious act to realize that, listen, this is God. This is who He is, and He is still for me. And because I know that, I'm going to articulate. I'm going to trust what He is doing. I'm going to pray to the Lord, knowing that He hears. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Rejoice when we find ourselves in trials and hardships. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, doesn't make sense, shouldn't add up, but there it is, nonetheless, passing all understanding. His ways are not our ways. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God is faithful. And no matter what the circumstance may be, no matter what the hardship, no matter what a kind of oppression, whether it's the hands of believers or non-believers, whatever the circumstances that we find ourselves in, he hears the cries of those who are afflicted, yours and mine. And just as he has always, since the beginning of time, been faithful to move on the behalf of those who would trust him, he will move on our behalf. To show himself strong, to show himself for who he is, the Lord of hosts, the creator of heaven and earth, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in the relationship, that familiar relationship with you. God, you are our Father and we are your children by adoption of the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I praise you for the witness of your word, the scriptures themselves that tell us that you hear, that prove over and over again, your willingness and desire and ability to move on our behalf. To comfort, to deliver, to redeem. For your glory, for your honor, for our best. God, help us by your grace to continue to trust to continue to pursue you in those times of crisis and hardship and affliction and oppression. And Lord, even in the midst of those things where you may bless us, where we may be honored uh, with those blessings, help us, Lord, not to forget who you are. Help us not to forget that there's nothing that we have that you didn't give us. And Lord, give us a heart It is submitted to you, that we might be good stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we ask and that we give thanks. Amen.